During the season of Advent, we anticipate again the coming of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who will save us from our sin. In much the same way, we gather around the Lord's table to remember his suffering and life-giving death. Advent calls us to anticipate again the coming of the Savior of the world, Jesus the King of Kings. The Old Testament prophecies foretold concerning Jesus' incarnation, the Word made flesh for our hope and atonement that brought us our deliverance. Advent represents our expectation, anticipation, and preparation for who Christ is and what he has done for us. He arrived into the world as a helpless child, being fully God and fully human. He came for us, he came for you, and he comes into our lives and into our heart when we welcome him in repentance and humility. He is coming again in great power and glory to bring his kingdom into fruition. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance. Nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Taylor, Chris. Good morning, church. Uh, Pastor Nick, the junior high pastor, in case you don't know me, and I'm excited to hopefully be one of the first to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thanksgiving is over, and now we look forward to Christmas. So Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, it is, it's been weird, right? So this whole year for my family has been filled with a whole lot of crazy and a whole lot of stress. Uh, but I'm looking forward to Christmas because um, we are awaiting the arrival of our fourth child who will be born just a few days after Christmas. And so there's a lot of anticipation in my house right now. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of worry. But there's also a lot of joy as we look forward to what's coming. And when I woke up on Friday morning, I heard other people getting excited, excited for some sweet deals at their local stores, and excited for uh, everything that they got to set up for as I heard the thump, thump, thump of hammers and drills and people starting to decorate their homes. And if you drive through my neighborhood, and probably some of your neighborhoods too, you already see people with the inflatable Santas and their mangers out and lights around the house and even trees in the window, because people are getting ready, people are preparing for Christmas. And it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time. And that's what Advent is about. It's about preparing us for what is coming. It's about preparing our hearts for the fact that we are anticipating the arrival of the birth of Christ. And so people are getting ready for Christmas. Some are getting ready because they're excited to give. They're excited to get. Me, I'm excited about the birth of my child. And when you get ready for Christmas or you get ready for the arrival of a baby, I mean, there's always things you need to do, right? 
things you need to check off the list. Did I buy everything I needed to for everybody? Did I hit everyone on the Christmas list uh, with the baby? Did I make sure I set up the crib the right way? Uh, is everything taken care of? Do we have diapers that are size newborn? Because I haven't used those in like years. All this different stuff that you're trying to make sure that you have so you're ready and you're prepared for what's to come. And that idea of preparation, again, is what we are going to be talking about this morning as we start this new series entitled Evergreen that will take us through the Christmas program in two weeks, as well as all the way up until Christmas. And Pastor Earl has got some cool things planned with this idea that you and I, you and I, need to be connected to the life source of Jesus Christ, the one who brings life, the one that when we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. But to get to that point, we kind of have to look through the story, the story of our lives and the story of the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel and us, we kind of share a similar story in the fact that you and I and the people of Israel have lived at different points in time in rebellion, where our hearts have been distant from God. And so as we jump in, we're going to look through a brief history of rebellion for the people of Israel. It starts in the garden. God created everything. He created it good. He created Adam and Eve, which was very good. And we get to Genesis 3, and the serpent enters the garden and convinces Adam and Eve that the truth of God's word is not greater than the lie that he has to sell. And they believe it. They believe the lie of the world over the truth of God's word, and all of a sudden sin and death have entered the world, and rebellion begins to take place. Rebellion begins to take place, and so God, there in that very moment, as he talks to Adam and Eve, says, this is not what I intended, but I have a purpose and I have a plan, and there will be a day when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And he makes a promise. He promises that one day there will be someone who will come to rescue his people, to restore the brokenness, to restore the relationship, and bring mankind back to God. We jump on over into uh, the story of the Exodus. God's people, his chosen people, Israel, have been taken into slavery. They've been taken into bondage by Egypt. And for 400 years, they've lived working for the Egyptians, and they are crying out to God, God, you promised us one day someone would come, someone would save us. Is this that time? Send someone, send a Messiah, send someone to deliver us from our bondage. And in God's good timing, he raises up Moses, who was a man who helped to deliver God's people from their physical bondage. But he promised that one day there would be a spiritual bondage that would be broken through the Messiah. And in Exodus 32, even then, God's people, they still didn't get it, right? They still didn't have the right mindset. Their hearts were still hard. And there, next to the very mountain where Moses was speaking to God, they built a golden calf. And they began to worship it. They began to give it praise because they were in rebellion with God. And they need someone to deliver them, not just from a physical bondage, but a spiritual one. So we move into the book of Judges. And many years later, after they've wandered through the wilderness, they finally settle into the land of Canaan that God had promised them. And now there is this cycle of sin that has taken place. 
people of Israel had, had tried to follow God, but the, the people around them, the Canaanites and others who, who were idolatry worshipers and had other things set up who didn't believe in God, kind of corrupted God's people. And so they began to worship false gods, and the cycle of sin began. These people then would take over the Israelites. They would cry out to God, where is this Messiah? Where is this person who is going to save us? And God would raise up a judge who would set them free from the oppression of those people. But very shortly after that, that cycle would begin again, and they would fall back into it. And this happened year after year after year for many years until the very last judge recorded is Samuel. He was a judge and also one of the very first prophets of the nation of Israel who spoke God's truth to the people. And there, in the book of Samuel, we hear the story of the kings of Israel. And the kings of Israel were brought about because God's people, again, couldn't connect the dots that God had a plan for them. Instead, they said, you know what? Everyone else has a king. Everyone else has a king around us, so we want a king. Give us someone that we can physically see, someone who is tangible, that we can, we can follow, who can lead us. And God said, I'm your king. You need to follow me. I am your king. But the Israelites, they didn't want that. They, did, they wanted someone that they could see, that they could follow. And so God said, all right, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he anoints Saul to be the very first king of Israel. And Saul was someone who was so against the heart of God that ultimately his sin and the chaos that he brought into Israel led to his own death and his destruction. And so God raised up the next king, David. Well, David was a man after God's own heart, and he was a really good king, but even in his humanity, he still rebelled against God, and his sin again led to chaos in the hearts of Israel. And through David's children, eventually the kingdom of Israel was split apart, and God said, the sin that is in your lives is so great and so much that I... We, you can't live like this. And, and because of it, you're going to be punished. You're going to be judged. And I'm going to spread you and scatter you across the nations. And I'm going to take you from your homes and place you all over the known world. And you are no longer going to have a place to call your own. And that is the story of the exile. Where God's people are taken out of Israel. Where the temple is destroyed. Where Jerusalem is destroyed. And God's people are spread out across the nations. See, essentially... Israel itself had cut themselves off from God. With every step that they took, they chose to move further and further away from God. And maybe, right now, maybe you feel distant from him too. Maybe you feel that you've done something in your life that has essentially cut you off from God at this point in time. But as we look to this season of Advent, as we look ahead to where God is leading us, I want to tell you right now that there is a hope. There is a hope that says that this is not a permanent state if you choose to believe. You see, even in the midst of the exile, even in the midst of Israel being cut off from God, he still raised up prophets to speak to his people. One of those prophets was this guy named Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8, it says this, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. 
They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. For they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. and never fails to bear fruit. See, even in those moments, God speaking through his prophets was saying, listen, you, you think that I've forgotten you? You think that I've abandoned you? You think that I've forgotten the promise that I made? But if you remain in me, if you stay connected to me, you're going to be like the evergreen that will never fail, that will never lose fruit, that will never lose its leaves, but you will be connected to the life source. But Israel still didn't get it. Eventually, as we get towards the end of the New Testament story, we see the return from exile because God had promised that one day he would bring his people back together. And for the Israelites, as they're brought back together, there's some revival in some of the hearts, but ultimately, for them, they think, man, if we can rebuild the temple, if we can rebuild the house of God, then surely we will find favor with God. And so they rebuild, and they rebuild, and they wait, and they hope that this is what will bring them back into community with God. But that's not, that's not what it was. In fact, Israel continued to doubt what God had in store for them. And so as we get to the last prophet in the Old Testament, right before we hit the Gospels in Scripture, we see Malachi, this prophet who is speaking on behalf of God. And in Malachi 1, there's just this small section of verses. And it's amazing because I can honestly say that the response that Israel has here is a response that I've had in my life. See, God through Malachi says, Israel, I have loved you. I have loved you. And Israel responds with this. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all at some point asked that question, God, how, how have you loved me? And not, oh, how you love me, but how have you loved me? We doubt. And Israel doubts God's love. See, Israel's story is our story. And you and I, at one point or another, maybe even now, we've chosen to rebel against God. We've chosen to doubt God's love because at the heart of Israel's rebellion is idolatry. And that's the same story for me. That's the same story for you. All of us at one point or another in our lives have put something else on the throne of our hearts. We've let sin take root in our hearts and grow there, maybe even unknowingly, thinking that it's okay. And that's not what God wants for you. It's not what he wants for me. And the promise that he made from the very beginning saying that one day there will be someone who will come who will cut the sin out of you, who will burn the sin right out, needs a place to grow. There needs to be a place for new life. And so, like I said, our story is Israel's story. And like Israel, I think sometimes in the point of the exile, we think that we can work our way back to God, that there are things that we can do, that we can rebuild the temple thinking it'll draw us close to God, but it won't. Something 
needs to change. And in fact, Malachi continues in chapter 4 and he says this, Surely, surely the day is coming when God's anger will burn like a furnace, where all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Now, I find this section of verses really unique because God is first talking through his prophet saying, listen, there's so much sin in your lives that I have to basically set fire to the land to burn it all out, that eventually there's going to be ash and decay and death because of this sin in your life, this idolatry in your life, and it needs to be taken care of. And if that were the end of the story, that would be really, really hopeless. But that's not it. He says, but if you revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his rays, and you're going to go out and frolic like well-fed calves. And that's important because calves, baby cows, what do they eat? They eat grass. They eat plants. They eat foliage. They eat things that are going to bring them nutrients. And if there has been such a fire that devastates the land, there's not going to be life after that. Yet God is making a promise still that he has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten that they need their hearts to be ready for him. See, a fire, when it comes through, when you think about what a fire does, it destroys everything it consumes. It consumes everything. You see, a wildfire, it takes out the trees, it takes out the landscape. There's ash and dust. When lava comes through from a volcano, it just leaves in its path the ash and dust and death as it kills everything in its way. It can even be so powerful to destroy cars, burning through everything. Nothing survives the burning of a fire. It is so powerful. And this, this picture is the hearts of Israel. And this picture is our hearts. See, when we are separated from God, when we are far from God in our rebellion, that means we have put distance from, between us and God. Our hearts are like that dried, scorched soil. There is no life. There is nothing there. Instead, in our sin and our rebellion, we think that we have it going on. We think we have life in us, but really, it's nothing but death and decay that will not last. There in our hearts, that's what we have. That's where I was before I came to know Christ. I thought things, I thought I had things figured out. Even in junior high and high school, as I was growing as a young man, I thought that, you know, I knew what I was going to do. I knew where God was going to take me. But it's, it wasn't true because even though I knew God, I was still living for myself. I was still living in this rebellion. And in my studies for this weekend, I came across this military phrase called the scorched earth policy. This is this. It's a military strategy of burning or destroying buildings, crops, or other resources that might be of use to an invading enemy force. So I thought about this. I thought about, wow, what if, what if in Malachi here, God is more talking about the fact that, listen, like, like a military who's going to burn everything so the enemy can't use it, what if, I, what if your heart, what if my heart, what if Israel's heart needed to have the sin burned out of it just so something new could take place? 
just so something new could take root, just so some new life could grow. Because when sin and rebellion are in there, the enemy has hold of us, and God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that from you. He doesn't want that from me. Instead, he wants us to live in this disposition that we are being prepared for what is to come. And here at the end of the Old Testament, what the Israelites are waiting on is that baby that was born in a manger. The Messiah that they kept asking for from the very beginning. Where is this Messiah? Where is this person who is going to save us? God had made a promise and he had not forgotten his people. God had not forgotten his people. And the truth is, God has not forgotten you. Wherever you're at at this moment, whether you feel like your heart is that sin, is that ash and that dust that's taken root in your life, or you feel like, you know what, I think things are pretty good. I feel like my connection with God is pretty great. Or you feel like, I know God, but I've, he's kind of at arm's length right now. I just want to tell you that he has not forgotten you. Wherever you are at, he has not forgotten you. And you, you and I, sometimes we need someone who is going to, to, to peel back the hedges, trim the hedges, and look into our hearts and say, we're not as prepared as we thought we were. We're not as ready as we thought we were. And we need someone to take that sin and that rebellion away from us so we can have restoration. And that is the message that he brings through the birth of his son. Now, like I said before, we are preparing for the birth of our fourth child, and uh, who's going to be born a few days after Christmas. And it is really exciting. But when you have more than two kids, I honestly believe that all of a sudden there are things that you are just like, eh, we don't need that, or we don't have to worry about that. With our, my first child, our daughter, I remember my wife, uh, when she was working at the time, she'd like give me a schedule for the day. Like, she needs to do this, sleep here, eat this, all these portions at this time. And, you know, you kind of follow that track of everything you're going to do, right? And I remember she'd come home and say, so did, did Zoe eat like the green beans and the peaches and the chicken and all this stuff? I'm like, uh, yeah, kind of. What, she didn't eat it? You know, and you like have these conversations about what your child is supposed to have. Now child three is like, uh, you ate half of a sandwich. That's okay. That's good enough, right? It's like, as long as you survive, we're okay. You know, with the first child, it's all about decorating the room and getting things ready and having the excitement of the beauty of the place. And with the third child, you're just like, you have a bed. That's, that's all you need, okay? Because you, you realize what you need to survive and what you need to take care of everyone, not just one person. And so it changes. But I remember, I remember being married for about three and a half months. And my wife, when I came home for the day, said... Uh, I have a surprise, and seeing that little plus sign on the stick, that told me I was going to be a father. Now, I was just figuring out what it meant to be a husband, and all of a sudden now I had to learn what it meant to be a father at the same time, and I was not ready. I was not ready. I was terrified. I knew that I had to prepare myself for what was to come. And so you do everything you can, right? You read books, you go to classes, you have conversations with your wife, you, you talk about what's going to take place, what you need to get ready. You get excited about the cool stuff like, what are we going to name the baby? What, what are we going to paint the room? What are all these different things? And you get excited about that. But eventually, you get to the toughest part. It's the moment you arrive at the hospital. It's the toughest part, at least in my mind. 
Because all of a sudden, minutes feel like hours, hours feel like days. And for my wife, who was going through the most difficult portion of everything, I'm sure it felt like an eternity. And we just wait. And you wait. And you wait. And you wait some more. Because that baby is going to show up whenever that baby is ready. And whether I'm ready or not, that baby's going to be here regardless. And I remember being there with my wife when our daughter was born and holding her hand as the midwife came in and said, okay, now's the time. You're going to need to push. Are you ready? And all of a sudden, the three people in the room with us turned into 12 people. And, and these carts came in and these other doctors and nurses. And I, I didn't know what was going on because I'd never done this before. I didn't know what to expect. And I happened to just take a look to see how things were going. And there was my daughter's head. And it was purple. It was purple, and I, I knew that that wasn't good. Babies, human heads should never be purple. But my daughter's head was purple, and I heard the midwife say that she's stuck. And the way that she was in there, it was cutting off the oxygen to her windpipe. She wasn't getting the oxygen she needed, and so she was turning purple. And the, the reason why everyone was in that room is because there was something intense that could happen that they were preparing for. Luckily, though, amazingly, God designed the human body in such a crazy way that there would be this bone called the clavicle that is fragile to begin with, but on a baby is so small, it can snap like a twig. And by doing that, they could collapse the shoulders and get my daughter out. And so when she was born, and she was brought into the NICU to be taken care of, to check her oxygen levels and all that, my wife and I, we couldn't even hold her. But I remember those moments, and I remember seeing her for the first time, and just thinking that everything that she is, everything that she is, all the love that I have, everything that I own, everything that I am is going to be hers because she is mine. She's precious to me, and I would do anything and everything I could for her. And that truth, that truth is the same type of love that God feels for you, that God feels for his people Israel, that God feels for me when he looks down on us. He says, I would do anything for you. You are so precious to me. And he hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten his people. Six years later now, my daughter, she is full of life, wild and crazy. And her name, Zoe, is Greek, and it means life. And she represents that. She represents this life that for a moment maybe we could have lost and God spared See, God hasn't forgotten his people. He hasn't forgotten you. But the question is, are you ready for new life? Are you ready for new life? Where is your heart at now? Is your heart so distant and so far away that you've cut yourself off from God and you say, I don't want anything to do with you? Are you at that point where you feel like your heart is a wreck, it's broken, it's in ashes, and it's ready for something new to grow? 
Do you feel like maybe your heart has, has grown with God, but maybe there are some things that need to be hedged out and taken care of because you're not completely there? Is your heart ready for new life? And as we prepare for this Advent season for the coming of Christ, that's the question. Are you ready for the new life that is coming in Jesus Christ? In just a minute, we're going to gather at the Lord's table. And as you exit your rows on the left and you take the elements, I want you to think about this question. I want you to think about this idea of where your heart is at. And after you've taken your seats and you've had a chance to reflect on that for a moment, we'll gather together to take the elements. You may exit your rows now. Ultimately, it was God who chose to love us by sending his son Jesus in that manger. And it was that small child who grew up, grew up and lived a perfect life, who was brought before Pilate, who was brought before the people and chosen to go to that cross not because he had sinned, not because he had done anything wrong, but because we put him there. With our sin, with our rebellion, and he went willingly for you and for me. And that story, that truth, God spoke about to his people, even in the exile, he was reminding them of what was coming, what they were preparing for. And the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter of his book is speaking on behalf of God, speaking about what's to come through 
Christ. And he writes this, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. See, we all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation ever protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And in this passage, Isaiah is reminding God's people that there will be that seed from the woman who will crush the serpent's head, someone who will take on the sins of us all, someone who will be that perfect sacrifice, that Messiah who will save. And every time we come to the Lord's table and we take the elements, we take the bread, we take the cup, we do so celebrating the fact that Christ died for us. And so we take the bread in remembrance of him. Isaiah continues. He continues in this passage speaking about that future hope and he writes, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. For after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And right here, Isaiah doesn't forget to remind us that it wasn't just the death of Christ that saved us, but it was the victory of his resurrection that beat sin and death. And we celebrate the fact that we have that new life in Jesus Christ. And as we take the cup, we do so in remembrance of him. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the truth of your word that you are a God who is constant and faithful, that even, even from the very beginning, even in our rebellion, even in the sin of mankind, you made a promise to save us, that it couldn't be anything that we could do, but instead it had to be you. And all throughout history, 
in the hearts of mankind as the rebellion grew and grew, you promised one day would come where you would burn that out of us, that you would make us ready for a place where new life could grow, but only because of what you did and not from us. And so as we prepare, as we get ready in this Advent season for the coming of Christ, we look ahead to the truth that you sent your son for us, that you loved us, that you continue to love us. You haven't forgotten us. You haven't forgotten your people, but instead you see us as precious. And because of that, you loved us so much. You sent your son to die for us. So Lord, remind us of that truth and remind us of where our hearts are at as we prepare for new life. Amen.